actually, I came to encourage you. And, uh, and there's plenty of reasons for leaving California, but one I know is so that you can have more space, right? You have more space. And, and I was reading in the LA Times that it says the average home has 300,000 items, uh, which I came well acquainted with this, what, three weeks ago, I guess my wife said, uh, well, about three months ago, she said, honey, we've got to recarpet the bonus room, which is, the, the nickname for the bonus room is the junk room. Right, so I think I found about 150,000 items in that room because you have to clear them all out for the carpet guys. Which I'm thinking, what am I paying for? Right, I'm paying for the guys to move the stuff out. But nevertheless, I spend my off day moving all the stuff out, and I'm thinking to myself as I read that article that uh, I, I completely believe that the average person has 300,000 items in their home, uh, and I, most of them need to be thrown away. By the way, uh, and if you have a garage, at least in California, uh, it, 25% of the people that have a two-car garage can't get a single car in their garage, right? And 32% can only get one car in. So that means that over half the people use their garage as a big closet. And um, I was watching this, uh, this documentary on the plane on the way out. And uh, it, this, this, and I, I gave this story, I know, but it's a different part of the story. It was a weird do- documentary. Don't make fun of me. It was, it, obviously this, this Netflix documentary made an impact on my life. But it talked about these two guys that, that their parents had died and they inherited this big house and they go through the house, and I thought, you know, and not that I'm old or anything, but I'm thinking, this is like what's going to happen to me. My, I'm going to die, my kids are going to go through my house, and they're going to throw everything away. They're going to keep like 10 things and throw everything else away. And, and so um, I just know it starts young. Did the average 10-year-old, the statistics say, uh, own 238 toys? The average 10-year-old, right? And... Um, you know there's 500,000 storage facilities in the United States? That's over half as many Starbucks as we have in the United States, right? People are storing junk when they can't fit it in their garages. They're putting it in these storage units. And at the end of it all, I just feel like most of it my kids are going to throw away anyway. So why? Might as well throw it away now. Uh, now, I'm not here to talk about your stuff, which you may be grateful and feeling relieved if your garage is dirty and cluttered. Um, I don't want to talk to you about the clutter of the stuff you have. I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes about the clutter of the stuff we do. Because there's a lot that we do that really should end up in the trash bin. And I'm not talking about sin. It's not a sermon about sanctification. Although it is a sin, but it's a kind of sin you don't think of as sin. It's the sin of being really invested in so many things that won't matter in the long run. And you may look at it as like, it's not, it's not sin what I'm doing. Well, it may not be sin, but here's how First Corinthians chapter 3 says. It'll certainly be a cause for regret. The Bible says you're going to take all the stuff that we've done, put it in two piles... And one's going to be described as gold, silver, precious stones, and the other pile is going to be called wood, hay, and straw. That's an illustration of saying a lot of it's going to be burned up at the judgment seat for Christians now, right? We're not talking about assigning a place for you in judgment. We're not talking about the great white throne judgment. We're talking about the bema seat judgment, which in Greek is just this raised platform where Christ is seated. And the Bible says he's going to look at all the stuff we've done, and I'll bet there's a lot of clutter on that day. And he's going to say, that's a lot of stuff that you did that didn't really matter. Like a lot of the stuff that I bought and kept in the junk room that, don't, that doesn't really matter. Thankfully, I threw several things away. Not as many as my kids will throw away when I die. But there's a lot of things that you need to... Wow, things got louder right there, didn't they? A lot of things that we do that um, won't matter 100 years from now. And I know a lot of you are already going to object to the sermon theme here because you're going to say, well, i got to do those things. I get there's a lot of things we have to do that don't feel very spiritual. I understand that. But 
It's not that we can't eat and drink to the glory of God. It's not that we can't take a vacation to the glory of God. It doesn't mean we don't put our feet up in the recliner to the glory of God. But a lot of people are trying to get to those things. That is the priority. Matter of fact, they work, right, as the old song said, for the weekend, right? It's it's they work to rest and play. And, And yet, right, the Bible says that we should be resting and recuperating and going through some leisure time so that we could get charged up to work. And what kind of work? Well, the kind of work that we do is not just the work that we do to earn a paycheck to pay our mortgage, but it's the work that will last 100 years from now. The things that God will say, there's gold, silver, and precious stones. Because the wood, hay, and straw, when it's all burned up and you look at your life and most of it gets thrown out in the cosmic trash bin, the Bible says we'll suffer loss. You think about when you die, everything's going to be peachy and high fives and everyone's going to be happy. But there is a judgment where we give an account for our stewardship. And what you don't want there is a lot of suffering of loss. Like, man, that was a lot of stuff that got thrown away. You want to be able to take things and say, this is what matters. Out of the 235 toys that 10-year-olds have, the researchers say they only play with 10 of them. Right? That's what they, 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 the 10 of them are important to them. And what I'm saying is, why don't we maximize the things that are important, not just to us, but things that are important to God. And when we see our necessary work assignment, or when we see even our vacation time, or we see our downtime in the evenings when we don't have a consigned assignment, that we are saying, I want to parlay this. I want to work this into a strategized priority of what is important to God. Because Christianity is not adding Christ to your sphere of activity. It's not having you know Jesus as a priority in your life. Real Christianity is having Jesus as your priority, as the priority. It's not getting a little Jesus in your life and a little Sunday in your life. It's really about having Christ be the Lord and dominant king of your life, which means I need to say, okay, what is it that you'd have me do in this workplace? What would you have me do in this family? What would you have me do in my neighborhood? You've put me somewhere on the map. And the Bible says that he's put people all around you. I'm quoting now Acts 17. He's put them at a particular place on the timeline. He's assigned the allotted periods when they would live and the places where they would live. He's set their boundaries where they live so that they might seek God and find him. Now, it's not that he's spelling out in the, you know, the flowers the gospel, right? There's an echo of God's glory in the earth. But what he knows and what he's assigned is the means for them to know God is us, the disciples. We have been entrusted with a message of reconciliation. And he's put people all over the Treasure Valley that you rub shoulders with during the week. And he said, I put those people there because I want them to know me, not just have a little Jesus in their life, right? but to really understand what real Christianity is, to know what it is to have my life dominated by the Lordship of Christ, know what it is to really be forgiven and sing those songs that we just sang on that screen and talk about Christ suffering in my place. And we know what that is. It's not just God and country, right? It's like, no, I know what that means. And my life is indebted to a Christ who died on a cross for me. And they're there. They need to know God. And we are the messengers who say we have the message so that you can know God. And that is the ultimate thing that will matter 100 years from now. Because if you get to that time of evaluation and you are being judged by Christ, which you will be, you'll be evaluated and given accountability. If behind you stands a long line of people that you have brought to faith in Christ, they've come to repentance because of your purposeful, prioritized activity, right? You're going to go, that was a good investment. Here's the gold, silver, precious stones. Are there more than that? Sure. Right? You're resisting sin, doing righteous deeds. But when I think of the thing that matters the most, 
the thing that's going to cause the most rejoicing in your life, it's seeing your life be utilized as a tool, an instrument in God's hands to win people to Christ. I want to talk about that this morning, because you will not regret that. If that becomes a greater priority in your life, and Christianity is really about priorities, right? I want you to look at, at Luke chapter 15, as you see up here on the screen. We're going to look at the first seven verses of a very familiar text that before we get into the parable Jesus tells of a lost sheep and a shepherd going to find them, I want to look at the context, the first two verses, and just read that for you. But I guess I should get the last nine words of chapter 14 to give you Christ's ultimate concern. I mean, look at these words here in the bottom of verse 35 of Luke 14. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Right? What is he concerned about? Well, you can glance up through chapter 14. He's about the gospel. He's about verse 33 in chapter 14, about giving up everything to follow Christ. He's about denying yourself, taking up your cross, following him. It's about Christ being my ultimate priority. It's about radical Christianity being all sold out to live for Christ. That's real Christianity, right? Radical Christianity is normative Christianity. That's all the Christianity there is. Everything else is just pretend Christianity. And so what we need to do is say, okay, we got to have that concern. He spells it out what it looks like. Even if you go back up in chapter 14 a little bit further, you can see he tells this story of a, of a banquet that a master gives. He sends his servants out to go get the people that are invited, and people don't want to go. They make excuses. So he says, go out into the highways and the byways and the hedges and compel them to come. Get the poor and the crippled, the blind. Bring them in that my banquet hall will be filled. So this is the passion of the Christian life. When Jesus called disciples, he didn't say, hey, come follow me. You'll get a cool small group, and you'll have friends. It'll be great. And raise your kid in a safe environment at church. He said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the goal. And that's what matters 100 years from now. Not whether or not you had a comfortable life. Not whether or not you had cool friends. What matters is, did I utilize my life, my workplace, my neighborhood, my gifts, my skills, everything that God has given me to reach people for Christ? That's no, not my gift. It's, you may not think it's your strong suit, but it is your responsibility. And he says, let him who has ears hear. He wants people to get saved. And so he's out doing exactly what he asks us to do. Verse 1, chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. That's the point. He's got a receptive audience now. Now he's excited about that. That's what he's here to do. He's going to talk about how excited he is in in verses 3 and following in a parable he tells. But guess who wasn't excited about that? People called the Pharisees and the scribes. They grumbled, verse 2, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. By the way, if the teenagers want to use this verse to hang out with the, you know, the juvenile delinquents at their school, that's not what this is about, right? This is not about, hey, Jesus hung out with the sinners and tax collectors. I've heard that, right? Knock your kid on the forehead if he says that and say, great. You know what Jesus did when he hung out with the tax collectors and sinners? He called them sinners and called them to repentance. Hey, you, you want to hang out with them? Great. Start with that and see how the conversation goes. And because what is this about? People that are willing to hear the gospel. They are receptive. Guess who was not receptive? Pharisees and scribes. They were not. And so Christ had already dealt with the Pharisees and scribes. And now he's saying, okay, you don't want to hear it? Let him who has ears, let him hear. Guess what? I found some people that want to hear. And I just want to encourage you with that. Let's start with that. If you're taking notes, and I wish that you would, jot this down. Number one, remain optimistic about finding the receptive. It wasn't who Christ or I shouldn't say Christ knew, but 
wasn't what the disciples thought, because they thought, if we could just win some of those scribes and Pharisees, they have the pulpits in the synagogues, they are the leaders, they're the teachers, they're the professors at the seminaries, let's get them saved. And they went with the message, they didn't want to hear it. I mean, it started with John the Baptist. They rejected everything they were saying. And so, guess what? I guess I got to go to the next tier. Just like John the Baptist, he went to the, the Roman soldiers, he went just to the common folk. If you won't hear, I'm going to go find someone that will hear. And you need to remain optimistic about that. Matter of fact, if I said, who is it that in your life would make a great Christian if they would just come to faith in Christ? And you think of this guy, this guy, this guy. Okay? If those people, those guys and gals in your life, you say, these people would be great Christians if I could just get them saved. Okay? That may not be the tear that responds. They may not be hearing. And then most of us go, well, they don't hear, I guess. You know, I tried. I tried to share the gospel. You got a second tier. You need to be remain optimistic that if you find the resistant, you're going to find the receptive. It's just going to take you some time. You keep moving through the layers of your life, the spheres of your contact, the spheres of activity in your life, and you keep saying, I'm going to find those. And they may not be the people that were first on my list if I said, who is it that I'm praying for to come to faith in Christ, real faith in Christ? And not just come to church, but real genuine repentance and faith, and they see Christ as their all in all. Well, I think this person, this person, this person I'm praying for, well, they're not listening. And I've been told, you know, I don't want to, grant, I don't want to jam my religion down their throat. Right? That, that's fine. Matter of fact, turn to Acts 13 just to show you the example of the fact I'm not asking anyone in this room to jam your religion down anyone's throat. I'm asking you, with everyone you know, to start conversations about Christianity and tell them, I'm not talking about cultural Christianity. I'm not talking about church going. I'm not talking about you've been there, done that in Sunday school. I'm talking about you really coming to the realization you are a sinner before God. You need to repent of your sin and put your trust in the only propitiation, the only satisfaction, the thing we sang about, that Christ is the substitute. Absorb the wrath of God for me. You trust in that, and then you know, my life is his. He gave his all for me. I'm going to give my all for him. I'm going to do what Luke 14, said. I'm going to give up all my possessions, which means everything I have is now God's. Whatever he wants me to do, I'm going to follow him. Acts 13. Look at verse, drop all the way down to verse 45. Scroll to verse 45. The Jews saw the crowd, and they were filled with jealousy. And they began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Paul and Barnabas are, are preaching the gospel, and the, the, the people that they went to to preach, they weren't, they weren't interested. Matter of fact, they started to say, ah, it's not true. They're not telling you the truth. It's not real. And they start reviling him. They revile him. And look at verse 46. This is very important to note. And Paul and Barnabas said, oh, then we're, we'll stop then. Highlight that part where they say they'll stop. Do you see that in verse 46? Do you see that in verse 46? But that's what we do. I tried to share the gospel at work. They told me to shut up. They don't want to hear it. They say, don't go, why don't you keep your religion to yourself? You seem like a fanatic, a Jesus freak. I don't want to hear any more of that. Okay. Well, I don't want to shove my religion down your throat. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, look, we're turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, here's the point. The gospel, Romans chapter 1, right, is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it was First, that you should go to the synagogue leaders, even within the Jews. You start with the people that, that, these are the people that should be first in line. 
in Judaism in particular, right? There's the Messiah of the Jews, the fulfillment of, of, of Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant. So they get it first. Now, there's no parallel, direct parallel for us because, right, it, it, the, the gospel has gone to the Jews. It's not that we're not going to evangelize Jews. We are. We're a bunch of Gentiles sitting on the other side of the planet 2,000 years later. And so, yeah, and the Jew and Gentile thing is like, whatever. But there's a parallel principle here, and that is that you probably have people on your list who think, these are the people I think I'm first responsible for, my immediate family, my extended family, my immediate coworkers. I want to make sure I share the gospel with them. And all I'm telling you is, if you've not had receptivity in their lives, you're thinking, well, they're resistant, so I'm, I guess I'm going to shut up about Christ. I shared with my next-door neighbor. They're not interested. Well, then I'm saying, you've got to move on. You've got to go to the next Level Because, you know, the disciples were commissioned, as we are, to make disciples of all the nations, right? And Acts chapter 1, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. So I know I'm supposed to share with anyone and everyone, so I should share with that second tier level, with the receptive that I find wherever I can find them. When the Gentiles heard this, verse 48, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And here's the most important thing in this text I want you to catch. It's the most encouraging thing that makes me optimistic. As many as were appointed to eternal life believed. I want you to think about that. As many as were appointed to eternal life. God has people, as it says in Acts 17, that he's put in the timeline in particular places, and these are the people he's prepping, the good soil. They need the seed of the gospel in their lives, and he's going to bring sowers with that seed into their life. And those people are appointed. They're going to become Christians. And the means that God has appointed... Not only the ends that he's appointed, but the means he's appointed, which are people like you and me, to bring that, he says they're going to come to faith in Christ. So they're out there. You and I need to be the agents to bring them to repentance. They need to see their sin and be brought to repentance. So I guess I'm asking this question. Right? In the Treasure Valley, do you think there are any appointed to eternal life that have yet to repent in Christ? I just want you to think about that. Do you believe that? If you believe, if you don't believe that, by the way, if you're Christians, then you pack up and come back to California with me because there's plenty of people there that we're trying to reach with the gospel. But I'm just telling you, if you believe there are non-Christians in this valley that need to repent and put their trust in Christ and God is prepping them and preparing them and has appointed them to be saved, but they're not yet saved, then it's our, it's our job to find the receptive. And I want to know this. If I believe that there are still people that are appointed to eternal life in this valley, then I'm optimistic. I just got to find them. I just need to find them. And you know what? That perspective, verse 49, Acts 13, uh, we're going to see a growing church. Not with just people transferring to other, from other churches to this one. Like mm, people that were not Christians last year. People that are not Christians right now, but they're going, to, they're going to be added to our number. The word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. That's what I want here in this valley. People turning from the satanic lie of Mormonism, people turning from the satanic lie of modernism, of relativism, of secularism, of naturalism, and saying, you know, they need to put their trust in theism, of Christology, of truth, of who Christ is. They need that. They need to be freed from that. And, and we are the agents to do that. And so we're going to see it spread throughout this whole place. But is it going to be easy? Verse 50, no. Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, and they stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. It's not going to be easy for us. Matter of fact, they may even drive you out of your job. You may be kicked out of your, your, your kid's little league team. You know, you just keep talking about this stuff. Whatever. You, you might be. But you don't say, well, then I'm going to shut up. Verse 51. Nope. They shook off the dust from their feet against them and went on to the next city. And the disciples were, look at verse 52, were bummed out that everyone rejected the gospel. 
They had to leave. They had to go to a different place. No, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit generating joy in your life is not going to be produced when you get an enclave and a fortress mentality and find a nice little place where you're protected from all the non-Christians. It's when you're penetrating the non-Christian communities in your neighborhood, in your workspace, people that may have a cultural Christianity, but they need to repent of their sins and become genuine Christians under the Lordship of Christ. That is going to bring you joy. Spirit of God is going to get excited about that. He tells a parable that elaborates this. Go back to Luke 15. He tells a parable, verse 3. And he asks this question, very familiar story. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, doesn't leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And here, let's put it this way. If everyone's a Christian who's appointed to eternal life, there's not another Christian. Well, wait, there's one. I guess there's one in Treasure Valley somewhere. That's the last Christian to be saved because I know there's got to be more because the Bible says in 2 Peter 3 that if every Christian that's appointed to eternal life is saved, then we're not going to be here. Right? Think about that. The only reason the delay of the, of the coming of Christ to receive his church, the Bible says, is that he's wanting more to come to repentance. Right? He, he wants all to come to repentance. All of what? Right? Everyone without exception in the world? No. He's got everyone on this roster appointed to eternal life, and those are the ones he's going to save. And until the last person is on the bus, as I like to say, we're not leaving. And so I know this. There's more appointed to eternal life. And maybe the last one's here in, in, in this valley. But the point is, even if there's only one left, I'm going to go out and find him. There's more people to be saved, and if the Pharisees and the scribes won't hear it, and they're going to sit around and grumble, he's going to go to those that are receptive. The tax collectors and sinners, they were willing to hear him, so he went to speak the truth of the gospel to them. And so he's out searching. And here's the good news. When he found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Now here's the theme, here's the key. Just like we saw over in Acts 13.52, rejoicing. Nothing more satisfying than that. And when he comes home, he calls his friends together. That's something you don't just keep to yourself if you won someone to Christ this week. He calls his friends and neighbors, and he was saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Now, the scribes and Pharisees weren't willing to rejoice because they didn't have this missions mindset. They didn't have this evangelistic fervor. Christ had it. His disciples had it. And they were sitting around, I don't really like the people you're, you're, you're speaking to. Yeah, but they're willing to hear me. You're not willing to hear me. They're willing to hear me. As a matter of fact, you ought to rejoice that they're responding rightly to the gospel. Because you know what? Nothing more satisfying than leading someone to Christ. Now, if I said, we're going we're to stand up right now, take your Bibles, we're going to split into two groups. I said, everyone who's won someone to Christ personally was used in conversation to lead them to real, genuine repentance and faith, and now they're integrated into the body of Christ. They're bearing fruit. Sit on this side of the room. And if you haven't ever done that, sit on that, that side of the room. If I were to do that right now and say, okay, get up, let's change seats. I just wonder where the aisle would be. And what percentage of this group right now would say, yes, I am a Christian, and I've led someone personally to faith in Christ? And if it was over here, if it was you guys, I would say this. Can you remember how great that was? Can you think about that? Someone shared with me recently about a guy, we were talking about him, and I realized I led that guy to Christ. And it came out of my mouth, and I thought, wow, that's an amazing thing. I personally led this guy to faith in Christ, and I just need to think about how amazing that was. And I think, wow, this is great. God used me as a, as a vessel, an imperfect vessel, to share this message. And now he and his family are Christians today. That's an amazing thing. And that's joy producing. If I think back to when that first happened, I, thought, wow, I was thrilled. I was stoked. And if I said, you guys who've done that, I want you to remember how good that is. And can you see that happen this week, this month, this year? Before the year is over, can you have another experience of leading someone to Christ? Because I know what it was like when it happened. You rejoiced and you told people. Rejoice with me. I found the sheep that was lost. 
And then I would say, would you guys talk to these guys a little bit and tell them? Because they've never had the experience. Matter of fact, they're afraid. Just like you were afraid. Just like Paul was afraid. You came, he says, to Macedonia, and he was nervous. He came with fear and trembling. But he purposed to know Christ and him crucified. That was his resolve. So let's tell them that it's worth it. And let's get you guys, if you've never, ever been utilized to do that, and you've given up because you looked behind one bush, you couldn't find the lost sheep, and you said, well, I'm done looking because it was really scary to go in the shadows behind that bush. I know it's scary, but I want you to think, you know what? I can, I'll put it this way, number two, get motivated by the triumph of the next conversion. Envision it. Think about it. See it in your mind's eye that this could happen to me this week. This could happen to me this month. That my conversation leads someone to contrition over their sin and throwing themselves on the mercy of God. And you know what I'm going to do that day? Share it with my small group. I'm going to text some people and tell them. I'm going to be so excited because God used me and my words that he empowered to lead someone to faith in Christ. I think that should motivate you. I think that should get you excited. That's the whole point of this parable. Hey, Pharisees and scribes, you should think this way. You should rejoice. You shouldn't be sour over all this. I came to your small group, and I said, I only got one. I only got time to go to one small group here at, at Compass Treasure Valley, and uh, I want to let you know. And I didn't say it in the sermon, but I want to sit here in your living room and tell you that I am mega rich. I mean, filthy, like crazy rich. I have so much money, and I just want to give a bunch of it away. I'd like to. Get, I'd like to start with you. In this group, I want you all to pull your phones out. And we're going to sit here, the 12 of us, and I just want you to download the app that I've created. It's called, uh, you know, you've heard of Apple Pay. This is called Pastor Mike Pay. (laughs) And you go on, um, you know, your Android store, you go to the app store, and you download the app, Pastor Mike Pay, and uh, I want you all to do it. You all pull out your phone and think, is this a joke? No, no, I'm serious. I'm just filthy rich. I want to give you some money. As a matter of fact, I want to give you $7 million each. Would that change your week? Probably. Seven million. I'm seven million dollars. But at the time we were done with the small group, you had seven million dollars more than you had in your checking account now. Would that change your day? Probably. And I said, okay, here's what we're gonna do. You download the app, but what you gotta do is you gotta put in your bank debit card, right? Take out Chase card or whatever, Bank of America, and put that in there. And you're like, I don't know about that. It's just that's gonna sketchy. This app looks pretty remedial. It's good, you know, maybe it's a scam. I said, no, 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 trust me on this. Put in your debit card into Pastor Mike Pay, and I'm going to credit you right now $7 million. And so people around the circle start to do it, and they get out their credit card number, they get it all, they put it in, and then I say, okay, now here's the code, right? Here's the code I want you to put in. Seven-digit code, and I give you the code. You put it in, and everybody's face starts to light up around the circle, because you had, you know, $8,000 in there. Now you got $7 million and $8,000 in there. And it's amazing, right? I would think you'd be happy about that. And now I said, well, here's the thing. I got to get back to California, but I want you to go to all the other small groups. And what I've done is when you download the app, every app has got a certain serial number on it. And I've got about, I don't know, 200 other people I want to give $7 million to in your church. And I don't have time to tell you who they are, but they'll download it and... 
If you just go from small group to small group and ministry to ministry and, you know, uh, just for a week, I'm going to have this available. So by next Sunday afternoon, if you come to church, I just want to make sure you get everyone to download the app and put in the seven-digit code, and they will also get $7 million. I just wonder, would you be motivated to have them download the app? What if they said, oh, this sounds sketchy. I bet you'd kind of power through the rejection. They said, I don't want to put my debit card in here. Are you crazy? I'm not going to do that. No, 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 do that. I think you'd work through it. And if, a, if you got run out of a small group, they said, you are a scammer. Get out of our small group. I bet you'd go to another small group because you would have the sense, right, that this is worth having other people experience the joy of having a $7 million bank account. So you would push through all that because you'd say, dude, you want to reject me? Fine. I can't get $7 million more. I got my $7 million, but he's going to give $7 million more to 200 other people in our church. So I'm going to keep working. And I only got seven days to do it. How much would that affect your week? Would it change your schedule? Would you have more conversations about downloading an app from the App Store than you had last week? I'll bet you would. Because you know how great it would be to have that. Now, materialistic, greedy American people, that's an illustration What if I told you, instead of being cast into outer darkness where there's weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth, where you have to pay for your sins before a holy God eternally, but you can be in a place where there's no reference to your sin, where you're welcomed into a kingdom, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You can have all of your desires fulfilled. You can have all the tears wiped away, no mourning, no crying, no pain, no grief. It's all gone. You can live in God's grace, or you can live in outer darkness. And you only have who knows how long, a week, a month, a year, 20 years, I bet you'd power through the rejection because you would be motivated by the triumph of someone getting it right. Why are we passive about this? Why don't we do this more? Do you not believe it? Do you really believe what the Bible says? Right? There's only two groups of people. There are those that are going to be forgiven and those that are going to have to bear their own sins. And if you don't believe that, well, then I would say this is not the church for you. Right? Because this church is founded as an evangelical church, which is not patting people on the back for whatever view of God they have. It's getting them to see God accurately and properly and to understand their sins, see themselves properly, and come to faith in Christ. Real faith in Christ. Not, yeah, I believe that. You know, it's not praying a prayer before a rodeo and then going out and getting drunk and picking up girls in cowboy hats. Not to slam the eagle rodeo, but I was watching a lot of that going on between guys getting thrown off of horses. And I'm just saying this, a little bit of Christianity is not going to deliver you from the lake of fire, right? Real faith in Christ snaps people's lives around in submission to Christ. And I'm telling you, when you see that happen, if if you're in that group where they really have this right with God, no greater joy than that. There is no greater joy than that. To see people that were dead in their transgressions and sins have the grace of God to show immeasurable riches. I'm quoting now Ephesians 2 unmeasurable riches of the grace of God's kindness in Christ. That is better than being dead in our transgressions and sins and being by nature children of wrath. If you believe it, I think we'll rescue the perishing. Proverbs 24, 11, I got to quote that. I had it in my notes. Here it is. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. If the carrot of the joy of leading someone to Christ doesn't get you, how about the stick of this passage? Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know, does not he who weighs the hearts, God, perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? 
And here's the point. If you really sit here today as someone who's transferred your trust in the finished work of Christ and you believe that you are not going to hell because of Christ, then you can't say, I didn't know my non-Christian neighbor was going to hell. I didn't know that. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your souls know it? If you keep looking for the lost sheep, you're going to find the receptive, and they're going to be repentant, and you're going to put those people over your shoulders, so to speak, and you're going to rejoice, and you're going to call everyone you know and say, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Luke 15, 7. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in your heart over one sinner who repents. Underscore the words, in your heart. Do you see that there? Interactive 11 o'clock crowd. Do you see that there? Is that what it says? Well, wait a minute. Verses 3 through 6. Man, it's all about rejoicing in my heart. Look at verse 6. Right? Rejoice with me. Right? Look at verse 5. I'm going to lay it on my shoulders rejoicing. Enjoy. Okay, but now something shifts in verse 7. This is no longer a focus on it'll be really cool for you to lead someone to Christ this month because you're going to be happy about that. That's an eternal thing. That's gold, silver, precious stones. That's something that 100 years from now you're going to be like, that was an amazing thing that I did. All that work to see that person one to Christ, that is worth it. Not about you being happy. In this passage, look, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in a whole different place, in a whole different dimension where Christ is seated. There will be joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Heaven now is rejoicing. Someone in a whole nother domain where the dead saints, right, are, right? They're physically, biologically, but the Christians that have gone before, I think about Christians, you know, and I've been in ministry many years and buried a lot of my Christian friends and They are rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents through my words to someone in a conversation, and they're rejoicing. As the passage goes on, I learn angels are rejoicing. I know this, God is rejoicing when this happens. Over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. I mean, that... There may be joy in something that happens in the sphere of life has nothing to do with evangelism, but nothing compares to this. Heaven rejoices. I want you to see, I'll put it this way, number three, sense your partnership with heaven. Sense it, see it. Recognize that heaven cares about this. I can't say much about how much heaven rejoices when you get a better house. Can't, I can't be sure how happy they are that you now have a three-car garage. I can't, I, can't, I don't know. You got new carpet in your bonus room, Pastor Mike? I can't see heaven going, super cool, Mike. That's awesome. But if I lead my neighbor to Christ this week, if there's someone that I have a meeting with this week who comes to real repentance and faith, I know heaven rejoices over that. They are partnering with me over that. One last cross-reference here. Go to Exodus chapter 3. I want to get in your brain right now in knowing kind of what you're thinking about this sermon. You're thinking, some of you, about this sermon, exactly what Moses thought about the quote-unquote sermon that God delivered to him. Because here's what happened in Exodus 3. God says to Moses, I want you to go and give a message you don't want to give to someone you're scared of giving it to, which I think there's a lot of parallels to this sermon. I want you to go and give a message you really don't want to give to a guy you don't really want to give it to. 
And so here's how this plays out. Drop down to verse 11. Moses' response. Moses said to God, and insofar as I'm accurately presenting the truth of God that we're all called to be entrusted with the message of reconciliation, to share that message with a lost world, right? Then God is saying to you, and the question now is, what is your response to God? Well, here's Moses' response to God. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? And bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. I'm saying, it wouldn't it be a great thing if I asked Moses as he's out there shepherding his father-in-law's sheep, hey, wouldn't it be a cool thing if all the Israelites were no longer slaves in Egypt, were brought into freedom? I'll bet he'd go, that would be cool. And you could sit here this morning. I said, wouldn't it be great if people in Treasure Valley start coming to real faith in Christ? I'll bet some of you, that would, that would be cool. I'd, be, I'd, be, I'd save a seat for them at our church. That'd be great. But now God says, you're going to be the agent of getting that done. You're going to see lives released from that enslavement. And he goes, who am I to do that? Can't you send the preachers? I mean, they've been to school. They seem a little more articulate than I am. They know all the big words, and they can respond to all the arguments, and they know apologetics. Who am I to do that? Here's his answer, and it's his answer to you, which is the whole point of heaven engaging with you and partnering with you in this. He said, I will be with you. I'll be with you. By the way, the passage I just quoted about you being entrusted with the message of reconciliation is from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And if you know that passage well, it goes on to say that if you open your mouth about this message of reconciliation, here's the text. It says, it'll be as though God were making his appeal through you. Talk about the partnership. He wants to empower that conversation at Starbucks and make that conversation as effective as possible. As a matter of fact, Jesus said to his fishermen from Galilee with an accent who were really seen as hicks in town, town Jerusalem, listen, he says, don't worry about what you're going to say when you represent me to these people. I will give you words to say. And some of you never even relied on that promise. And speaking of promises, look at the next line here in this passage. Exodus chapter 3. He said, and this will be a sign for you that I have sent you. Because he's like, I don't think God's really wanting me to do that. No, here's the proof. Here's the sign. Here's the, here's the thing that's going to verify that I'm actually telling you to do this. He says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Just like I'm saying to you, here, and it, I want different proof. I want some kind of, can I get it, some other kind of proof? No, here's the proof. The proof is, if this sermon is true, and I say to you, get out there as a representative of the message of the gospel, fight through all the excuses, try and get people to understand what the Bible says about them, about Christ, and about God, and about eternity, about the response to the gospel. Here's the proof that God has called you to do this. You're going to have people in this room with you worshiping who are going to get saved. And I'm thinking, okay, well, that's future. That's no proof now. That's how God often works. Here's the proof that I've sent you and God is with you in this, you will be successful. And here's the point. God says, let him who has ears, let him hear. There are receptive people out there. It may not be the people at the top of your prayer list, but there are people on your list. Keep moving down the list. Find some more names to put on your list. Who are the people you may think, I don't know know if be interested in talking about Christ. Talk to them. You'll see success. And the proof will be much like for Moses. It's going to be success. You can see people worshiping in church with you. Moses didn't do well with this. Go to chapter 4, verse 10. Drop all the way down to verse 10. God keeps at it. But Moses said to the Lord, My Lord, please. Right? I'm not eloquent. 
either in the past or since you've spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and of tongue. I'm just not good at this. Look at verse 11. The Lord said to him, oh, okay, I'll find someone else who can speak better then. I'll, I'll, I'll send the pastor. I'll send people on the evangelism team. No, it's good because I didn't know that you weren't good at speaking. I thought you were smarter than that. I, I, I'm so sorry to have bothered you with this request. He goes, hey, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who made your mouth? I can't speak very well. I made your stinking mouth. I made your mouth. I can make you mute. I can make people deaf. I can make people sing. I can make people blind. I do that. It is I, the Lord, right? That's me. Now, go. Now, it's getting redundant here. It's getting uncomfortable. Now, therefore, go. And I will be with your mouth. I'm going to be with you. I already told you that in chapter 3, verse 12. But now I'm going to tell you again in chapter 4, verse 12. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with your mouth. I'm going to teach you what you're going to speak. And he said, oh, Lord, please send someone else. I don't know what you think demonic activity looks like. It isn't what Hollywood portrays. To talk about demon activity is not to have your head spin around and you turn green and have projectile vomit. Or to go to some rock concert and drink blood out of a skull. Demonic activity is you sitting in a sermon like this and going, send someone else. I don't want to do it. You're fighting a spiritual battle. I know it doesn't please God. God gets mad at sin. He said, oh, Lord, please send someone else. In verse 14, again, it's not God going, oh, okay, I'll find someone else then. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Think about this. The guy that that Cecil B. DeMille is going to make movies about 3,400 years later, God is going, I'm so ticked off at you right now. I'm telling you to go, and I promised I'd be with you. And the proof is that in the future, you're going to see people are come to Christ because of you. In this case, that's the application. You know there are people yet to be saved in the Treasure Valley. They are appointed to eternal life. Get out there and find them. God will be with us. When Moses didn't think he'd do it, God says, I'll be with you. When Gideon said, why don't you send someone else to fight the Midianites? God said, I will be with you. He said, I'm not inexperienced. I'm from a small clan. I will be with you. When Jeremiah said, I'm too young to go speak for you, people are going to reject me. I don't, I don't know anything. I will be with you. There is a need for us to see heaven's partnership with us. They are excited about your evangelism. They're not so excited about the wood, hay, and straw in your life. But they will stand up and cheer when you engage in the battle of evangelistic endeavor, and you sit with people and speak to them about the gospel. The sun was appointed by God to shine. Clouds, rain clouds, were appointed by God to bring rain on the earth. The soil was appointed by God to bring forth vegetation. You have been appointed by God to bring people to Christ. That is your job. That's it. I mean, there's more to it, obviously, being a Christian, but that is the primary function of the church until we're taken home. I know that's scary. Ben may have told you that I went to Westminster Theological Seminary. He may not have told you, I, I'm also a graduate of Stanford. Um, when I'm out in California, I graduated from Stanford. I actually played on the basketball team at Stanford. 
I was a second stringer. I wasn't that good. I'm talking about Stanford Junior High School in Long Beach Unified School District. <laughs> I rode the bench most of the season there in junior high. I was a lanky kid. I wasn't very good. Didn't work hard at home at it. Practices, coach should have known I wasn't that good. But I was in the middle of a game, and it was nearing the end. It must have been. I don't remember. But I do remember the horror when the coach looked at me and said, Fabares, you're, you're in. I'm like, you know, you're like, me? Not very many Fabares is in my junior high. So it's like, yeah, you. Like, you've seen me in practice, right, coach? I mean, I had an Exodus 4 moment, right? Can you send someone else in the game right now? I was petrified. And the coach was taking a big risk on me. But God is not taking a risk on you. When he puts his finger in your chest, he says this, right? You go, you share the gospel, you look for lost sheep, you're going to find them. You are going to find them. The church is going to have success, and it will bat back the gates of hell until Christ comes back. And all I'm telling you is the chest pressure you're feeling is a God thing. And the, re- and the response is either going to be, no, I just want to do church, find a comfortable place to hang out with Christians. Or you're going to say, no, that's the mission of the church. I want you to be focused on the mission of the church. I want you to prioritize the mission of the church. And that's worth, as Jay Vernon McGee used to say, I'd much rather burn out than rust out. It is worth you giving your all. Paul says, I will, I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. Let's give our all to see people win to Christ. And unlike other endeavors, I can't say go out on the golf course and you're going to win the PGA championship. But I can say this, you go out in the highways and byways and compel people to come in. It may not be the people you thought that were at the top of the invite list, but you're going to find people that are going to respond. And you're going to rejoice when you see them brought to repentance and faith, singing songs with us, hopefully in a building, which is what we want. We don't want, we don't want to be in Pathways Middle School for the rest of the, of, of the, of the time. And you know why? Because we want a comfortable church with a building. We don't have to set up. No. Because we want this to be a missionary outpost that is changing people's lives with the gospel. That's what this church is about. And that's what this church was planted for. And I commission you afresh to have that a clear mission in your mind and knowing that it can't be a corporate goal if it's not an individual goal. Let's see some people brought to faith in Christ. Would you stand with me? We're going to wrap this up with a prayer of commitment. And, and, And I'm not... I'm not super stupid. I, I know that there are people here that are hearing this and rejecting it because you're not even a Christian. And again, when I was in church as a kid, every sermon ended with the same point, which is you get saved. And, and there is time for that, obviously. The point of this sermon is get out there as a Christian and be an evangelist, whether you think you are one or not. But I can't help but to add and you, may be, you might be here as a, as a non-Christian going, I don't get all this. I just want a little Christianity in my life. And I would say to you today, this could be your last day. So who knows? I mean, I've been in meetings with people that have dropped over and died. So I'm thinking, who knows when your last day is coming? But I'd say get right with God today. Real repentance, real faith. If you don't understand it, talk to someone in this church that looks like they know what they're doing. And if they don't know, they'll get you to someone that does and find out what it is to be a real follower of Christ. And if you are, or you become one today, we've got a mission this week. and reach people with the gospel. And if you don't think it's important, then I think you just don't believe what God says. So let's believe what God says. Because there's nothing better, there's no better prescription for joy in your life than that. And that's the motivation I want you to 
go home with today. Let's pray. God, fill us with joy as we work hard to be about the things that are priority to you. Let us prioritize what you prioritize. Let us be excited about what excites you. Let us cheer and rejoice over things that make you cheer and rejoice. And God, we know it's so easy in a world that's constantly worried about piling up more wood, hay, and straw. But let us be countercultural and say, yeah, some of those things are necessary, but they can be redeemed because we're going to use our rest, we're going to use our home, we're going to use our cars, we're going to use everything in our lives, our health, while people idolize all of those things, we're going to use those as tools and instruments of seeing more people come to faith in Christ. And let this church be successful at that. Not for the, the sake of their own fame or even their size, but their size might be adequate and their base might be adequate, their facility might be adequate to plant more churches in this Treasure Valley and beyond. So God, grant your blessing to this church as this church stays focused on its mission. Let us believe the truth of your word. Let us be the kinds of people that step up and say, I will gladly be someone that takes the message of reconciliation to people this week and give us success and great rejoicing as we see people brought into the fold. People that could say just a week ago, two weeks ago, whatever it might be that they now were, they were once lost, but now they're found because they're singing about amazing grace with us. So God, I commission this church to that end. Keep us focused on that without distraction in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.